brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Under cold Midwest skies. Something lurks through the dark. From the rolling hills to the flatlands, they move through the fields. They are cryptids of the corn. of Southern Illinois to the cold coast of Lake Erie. This week we are your guides. I'm Justin. And I'm Jay. And welcome to Cryptids of the Corn. Bum 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 bum. Alright, before we get into this week's episode, uh, we've got a lot of front of house stuff. My interview on Uncomfortable's podcast uh, with Eric just got published. I haven't listened to it yet. I'm super excited. Literally as we were setting up, I got the notification that it was published popped up i want to check that out um so we'll listen to it later uh what else uh jay's finally back well i came back last episode too oh yeah i forgot we did something on saturday this weekend was a blur as everybody knows i talked about my grandpa's passing last week so it was just it was a really wild week it just kind of flew by and didn't fly by I drove to Detroit three times and Columbus once for uh, family for the airports. That sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, well, Detroit's not that bad to get to the airport. Right, yeah. Because you don't got to go into Detroit. Yep, it's outside of town. Uh, so I appreciate that, unlike Columbus, where it's... You got to drive all the way through yeah. Columbus to get to the airport. Unless you're going to Rickenbacker, which if you can fly out of Rickenbacker, do it. I don't even know where that is. It's a little tiny airport. It's got two terminals. Oh, nice. It's super nice. And the uh, TSA there is super nice. Hmm. Uh, they didn't all, get the glove treatment? No, they're all just like, go, go. I, the guy in front of me had a little pocket knife, and they just put it in a safety bag and sent it with him. Oh, nice. Very just, laid back. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> if you're going to steal one of those, they, 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 those planes just have enough gas to get where they're going. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, go ahead, steal it, see what happens. Um, what other front of house stuff? Uh, so I listed our shows uh, that we're going to do this this year. Uh, well, I'm not shows. Uh, con or conventions. Conventions. And, bo- yeah. Booths. We're gonna have. Yeah. We're gonna have. We're trying <clears throat> to get on Crypticon. I just finally got a hold of those guys yesterday. Uh, they're gonna post it probably this week, and it's like an application based thing. Uh, they're very picky with who comes, which makes sense because they are the premier event. Right. The leading. They don't need to fill spots. Right. Unlike these other places, you know, where it's more open, where it's like, yeah, you know. 
we have a spot. No, they have a pretty chunky waiting list. Let's hope we make the cut. Well, yeah. yeah if we do, that'd be, I think that'd be crazy if, if not, we did. If not, we'll, we're still going to be there. We'll wear yeah. our t-shirts and stuff. It won't hurt my feelings. No. But we'll have fun. We'll still go down. Uh, we're going to Crypticon no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, what other front of house stuff? So we're kind of getting close to season finale time. It's nuts. Yeah. And I don't think we're planning a seasonal break as of yet. Uh, do you think we need one? I mean, the train keeps rolling. Yeah, I think we're good. Uh, I don't think we've been pushing ourselves too much uh, with any of us. Some of the scripts are a little heftier now. Some of them are really, as you can, I'm sure you can tell, because I can see the plays through full. The ones that have a little bit higher written scripts or do a little better than the others, but it's whatever. It, we're having fun with it. That's a bit and that's part, the yeah. main thing is uh, we don't have we don't make no money off of nothing, but we like spending it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. I'm trying to think anything else before we get into this. As you can tell, we're very prepared. I'm a we're professional podcasters right, at this very. point. I think the only thing new right now is your your podcast or your episode just got released on yeah. Uncomfortable. And I'm excited to listen to that. He's Eric's a super cool guy from Uncomfortable. Uh we're going to meet him uh in person uh in April at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. We will meet him at the Michigan Bigfoot Conference. And we're also vending his conference at Bigfoot and Brews. That would be fun. Yeah, and I got all those in the Hocking Hills is the only other one. Yeah, we got, they were paid for and we're ready to go. Right, yeah. But those are the four. We're still maybe looking at West Virginia. That's in June. For, so, for some Mothman stuff? or No, for uh, oh. the conference. Wait, what conference? There's a West Virginia Bigfoot conference. Oh, okay, gotcha. And Emily, me and Emily have gone back a bit. Emily thinks we probably have enough signed up, but then she keeps sending me stuff to sign up for it. So hey, why not? Emily hints weird, <laughs> but uh, like she'll say that stuff. No, I don't do it. And then the next day, here's the form. Well, you know, hormones and whatnot. Women are wild. I'll tell you that they're their own cryptid creatures. Yeah. We still don't understand them, especially in the morning if you wake them up too early. Yeah. So anybody that listens to Uncomfortable's podcast, I'm sorry if I sound like a dork. Because I am. So yeah, this one, yeah. I was actually pretty nervous to do the interview because on this one, I can hit stop yeah. whenever I want. When you take that away, <laughs> that's a little bit different. And I did, uh, I wrote it out better. So when I told the story on here, it was a little more choppy and, you know, probably not as detailed because we were just telling it off the cuff. Right. And it was over two summers, so it was a lot of stuff. A lot of info to get out. Yeah, and but uh, yeah. So for him, I had it all written out and everything, which helped a lot, just to keep it smoother, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't get the stuff uh, mixed up and stuff like that. Well, I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, we'll probably listen to it right after this. All right. So this week we're doing something a little different. Uh, it's a J episode, and we're trying to get some more of these in because they are the most popular episodes. Yeah, my one. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still, it's uh, it's tied for first. Hey, I'll take it, I guess. But we're going to cover a chapter in a book that I gave Jay, and it's Strange World by Frank Edwards, uh, circa, it's a second edition, what do we say, 1973? Yep, this, this edition was printed in 1973, originally came out in 1964. Yeah, 
So we're going to, what's the name of the chapter? We're going to cover a chapter in it, a couple stories and stuff like that. So the chapter we're going to cover is called The Search for the Hairy Giants. Yeah. So very Bigfoot-esque things. So I got, I came into possession in December. Yeah. Well, it's uh, both, either December or before December. You gave it to me right before Christmas, this book. Okay, then it was, it was probably that week. Okay. I gave it to you that week. Probably, yeah. Uh. I came to possession of a large collection of books from everything from uh, paranormal to UFO to Sasquatch. And I basically split down the middle with Jay and just gave him the other half. And they're pretty awesome. They're all old, too. Yeah, they're all vintage books. So that's a good comment to bring up that if some of these stuff that's in this book seems dated, it is from the 70s, early 70s. True. And the original book is from the early 60s. Like, uh... I think some parts they refer to Native Americans as Indians and things like yeah. that, and the white people as white men and think like the white man and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's fun to, you know, jump back and listen mm -hmm. to those words. So, anything you want to say before we get into it? Well, this book is also about like it's got. Let me see here how many chapters it's got. A hundred and seventeen chapters, and they're all just little short, but they're all about everything from. Like we said, from Bigfoot to the Bible to UFOs to uh, just things disappearing, things in the sky, like everything you can imagine. There's a little story in here for almost all of it. Like here's a chapter called Midgets from Mars, question mark. Like, I don't know, that sounds interesting. That's enough to... That is a... Could be a future episode, but... Yeah. You know, it just gives you a little bit of mystery and wonderment. Mm-hmm. But all right, so I'm going to read this chapter from this book. Um... You just want me to get into it? Yeah, and we'll just take a pause after every story. Yeah, so I'll we'll finish the story and then we'll yep. kind of talk jump about in whenever it. jump in whenever you want. It's pretty fun to listen to. Okay. So, all right, the search for the hairy giants. When one species of creature is pushed out of its accustomed territory by another, the loser generally retreats to the wilder and less desirable terrain. That may explain why the thousands of reports of huge, hairy, subhuman creatures around the world always come from the fringes of the wilderness and jungles. Being not quite human, they would have to take what was left. And that seems to be exactly what they have done. There are many names for these creatures, but the names all mean the same thing in essence, the wild men. It is unfortunate in the Himalayas that they have become the subject of the white man's ridicule as a result of their being called abominable snowmen. This came about when their tracks were noted as they crossed from one remote valley to another making their way across snowfield across the snowfield in the process they do not live in the snowfield and the alleged scientists mostly publicity hounds who hunt them in the snow by so doing reveal their own insincerity because the creatures are generally shy and because they customarily confine themselves to their own remote fastnesses uh, own remote fastnesses they are seldom seen by white men. Natives of the Malay Peninsula are familiar with them, as they are the natives of Mongolia and the Siberian forests, and for that matter, the Indians in our own northwest. But upon occasion, white men have seen them, sometimes at very close range. For instance, there was a report by a Soviet scientist, Dr. A.C. Pronin, leader of a hydrologic, or hydrological mm -hmm. expedition All right. into the Pamir Mountains, and this is a, uh, you know, like kind of Russian. So some of these uh, locations and names I might get wrong. So I here we go. I cannot read Russian. I want to give it my best. So here we go. Um, 
and uh, okay, hydrological expeditions to the Pamir Mountains and Tadzik Republic, Central Asia, in the summer of 1957. Dr. Pronin stated that two of the native guides called his attention to a creature that was running its or that was sunning itself on a rocky ledge across the shallow valley from where the doctor stood. Using his binoculars, Dr. Pronin got a five-minute look at the creature under excellent viewing conditions. He described it in his report as a man-like in, st in structure with unusually long arms. Its face was largely covered with hair, and its body was entirely covered. Um, wait, where, where, wait. I just reread the same line. Here we go. Redo. Here we go. He described the creature under excellent viewing conditions. He described it in his report as man-like in structure with unusually long arms. Its face was largely covered in hair, and its body was entirely covered with hair that was grayish-brown in color. He estimated that it was seven feet tall and it's when it stood up. Two days later, the doctor got another look at the same or similar creature, which he said can only be described as subhuman. The natives told him that the creatures were harmless to humans and that they subsisted on roots, berries, and small rodents, which they dug out from under rocks. Now, I'm going to pause right there. In an earlier episode, you told me that you hypothesized that they eat on small plants, small rodents, and things like that. Yeah, and I... Excuse me, sorry. I'm congested today. We have a plug filter in the room. <laughs> but, uh... That's not my original... It's not my theory. Mm -hmm. That is, other people have speculated that, and that is what I agree with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it fits the bill. Even when we think of these other apex predators... Apex predators, I have quotation. Which I don't think... Bigfoot is probably an apex species. Mm-hmm. Well, probably not an apex predator. He's not hunting most of his food like that, you know. Right. Like a like a lion would be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When you look at big cats, but like wolves, most of their diet. Uh actually so when I was in college, we did a expedition in a valley in Canada. I didn't get a go, but I I knew the guys that went. Uh almost all their winter diet on wolves are voles. Oh, okay. Almost all their spring and fall diet is beaver. Hmm. So most of the time, a wolf pack, the thing you think is hunting buffalo and elk and moose. Right. It's actually eating small game most of the time, because that's what makes sense. Taking down a big herbivore is dangerous. And a lot of energy. It's a lot of energy, and you fail most of the time. Most, uh, I think wolf hunts, now nobody quote me at this home, it's like one in five are successful. Oh, wow, okay. And I think big cats are less than that. Oh, really? It's like one in ten. But shoot, everyone I see on TV, they always get him. Yeah, because he's been out there for four weeks <laughs> recording the same cat yeah. every freaking buffalo. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, so that model's kind of based off of black bears' diets. Mm -hmm. cause a lot of their range fits, It's as far as it seems from what evidence we have, a lot of their range fits the black bear range and densities. So we kind of feel that, or some people feel, and I'm a part of that, that their diets mostly reflect a black bear similar diet, which is 60-ish percent plant matter, 30-ish percent uh, small, like, mammals, amphibians, and stuff like that. Stuff that me and you could pick up. Right, yeah. And 10% larger stuff. Whether that's, you know, uh, black bears eat a lot of uh, year -born, or newborn deer and stuff like that if they can get them. Oh, uh, okay. It's hard for a black bear to catch a deer. Yeah. But not when he's brand new. Right, yeah. Uh, but like a black bears, a lot of their protein comes from, uh, oh gosh, Western chorus frogs and leopard frogs in Michigan. Hmm. That's like, they'll just walk up creeks and stuff and they'll just eat, you know, a hundred frogs. 
and you don't they don't tell that story too much or you don't yeah, see it on tv you don't see it you don't see it's it. not as exciting yeah it's a that's more of a naturalist or a biologist view of it mm-hmm. you know it's not the it's not the story thing you know watching a 200 pound bear eat a two ounce frog frog yeah and i'm not <laughs> that'll sure, make headlines yeah i'm not sure about their uh caloric intake off my top of my head i don't know or how many pounds i don't know how many pounds a day of you know they need a food to sustain but yeah, that's yeah, and that's neat that they talk about that with the abominable swimming in the Yeti. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of that same thing that the natives there have witnessed. Yeah, they mostly eat tubers, roots, small right. animals. They that is witness them eating. Like yeah, so that's a neat idea that's from the '60s. That's still pretty much the same as today. Uh, so I we had talked about it a little bit earlier. Excuse me, sorry. That I think with this book, we're going to see a lot of stuff that's probably still ringing true today, and mm-hmm. then a lot of stuff that's probably really fallen to the wayside. I don't know, I've never read the book, but uh, that would be my impressions off it. But yeah, a lot of people still feel that way about their diet. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. There's been a couple of collections of what people claim to be Bigfoot uh, feces. Right, yeah. But there's no proof. And when I was uncomfortable, we talked a lot about DNA because, you know, I did that for right. a living for mm-hmm. a while. Uh, and not to be negative to anybody, DNA at this point for Bigfoot is kind of useless without a confirmed specimen of comparison. Your best result will be undetermined. Mm-hmm. As a Bigfoot enthusiast or researcher or whatever you want to call yourself, if you get a true undetermined test and you collect the DNA sample properly... That is your holy grail. That's your, you know, that that's, you know, it's not anything found, and it's not you. Because I feel, and we talked about it, I'm sorry, I keep going down comfortable, because a big chunk of it was about DNA collection. Yeah. Uh, we talked about, like, me and you have talked about a lot about spoiling the sample from breathing on it, or getting your hair on it, or getting your, you know, how, how to properly collect a DNA, a hair sample or a DNA sample. Without interfering your own. Yeah, because or... your DNA, if you're talking about a primate, which most people feel we are, your DNA can easily kick out that sample. Mm. Or the machine will try to say. That it's yeah, a primate. Yeah, it's human. When it's, yeah. human. When it's you. Yeah. And we have that happen with other higher primates, you know, chimps and gorillas and stuff. When we do DNA collections on them, I've never done that, but I've read it that, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, they can have problems with human DNA uh, not being really there, but the machine being like, oh, it's a human DNA sequence. Yeah. Uh, it sets off the... Yeah, and it'll kick it out. And it really, and we talked about it, it really depends on what test you're paying for. DNA sa- sequencing, DNA running can run anywhere from like four to 500 bucks. Dang. You know, to fifteen to $16,000 a test. Jeez. Uh, and it matters what test you do. Can't you just get a big uh, microscope and just keep zooming in until you see the DNA? No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that, that just sounds so much simpler. Yeah, it does. It sounds really simpler. Way cheaper, too. Jeez. Uh, we're talking about microns. So oh, okay. when I would get DNA. So the big problem when we collect DNA, now we're really off topic, <laughs> is uh, when we do eDNA, it's mm-hmm. freaking uh, chlorophyll. Okay. Because chlorophyll would plug up our filters. So you're talking the stuff inside of plant cells. Wow. Would so, plug up our filter. Yeah. Because they were too big. We're talking about uh, 
uh, 0.02 microns. Mm. So That's pretty small, I think. Yeah, it's really small. Can only imagine. I think most your M95 masks are 5 microns wide. Okay. The holes in them. And yeah. The, uh, the actual holes, not the ones you see on the surface. Right. You know, I'm talking about something that's 0.02. So that's, it's almost like... Ah, and we would, it, it matters about water. Man, freaking DNA collection took uh, forever. And water? Uh, yeah, because of the chlorophyll, depending on where we were. Mm-hmm. If you were in green water, oh my gosh. It was sometimes 8 or 10 hours. Good lord. A sample. Just to get it, just to get something? Yeah. Well, to get it, yeah, it just... Get something to pop up on the radar? Yeah. So, that's my two cents. Uh, what was your comments on that? I kind of... Oh, I just thought it was... When I first read this, I just thought... You know, I remember us talking about how you had told me about how you thought, you know, Bigfoot would eat, you know, whether it be plants or just small... You actually said small, small game, like little rodents um, and frogs and things like that. And then, sure enough, when I was reading this book, boom... They say the same thing, and I was like, okay. Because you were the first one I had heard that from. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think much of it. Like, no, come on, it's a Bigfoot. He needs a lot of big food. He's going to be killing deer and stuff like that, or and, a small child. Yeah, see, that's the misconception with a lot of big animals, mm-hmm. is what they have to eat. Yeah. And and it's they do have to eat a lot, yeah, but... It's a lot, the, the calories are still high, mm-hmm. but it's a lot easier to find smaller food. Right, yeah. I mean... It's just, if you have to eat 50 frogs or a rabbit, mm-hmm. what's well, easier to catch, for real. Right, and yeah. spend less calories. So that's all about the other thing. It's kind of the math, too. Calorie deficits. So how much energy do I have to spend to get the same amount of food? Hmm. And it's a lot less for just get, catching right. little frogs than it is trying to chase down a rabbit or sneak up on a rabbit. Do you think Bigfoot no math? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, uh, I feel like they almost have to, right? Well, mass kind of a a human it's, construct. I do they kind of. I mean, you know, too. I think they can count. Right. Yeah. Uh, parrots can count. Most primates can count up to yeah. a certain level. Raccoons can count to five. That would be an interesting. Well, and I'm sure um, you've seen like tests for chimps and stuff. Yeah, like, they can count. They, they can, can do count. like a lot of stuff. I wonder. Yeah. Parrots can do math. So I wonder. Like so, I how guess, advanced on the spectrum? Well, I don't want to say that. No, I don't want to say they can't do math. I don't know if they're using it a lot. Right. Yeah. Like if they're uh, if they actually need math. So like if we need to go this distance, um, at this speed, if and if a train's coming at yeah, ninety see, miles an hour the other way, are they capable of probably understanding <laughs> the concepts of math? Yes. Do you do think they they're out there? Math? Do you no. think they're out there doing that though? Yeah. Like. We got to make it to this I valley by sundown. Most, I think the most they do is counting just to make sure everybody's there. <laughs> right, you found probably. And yeah, right. And how many humans that are yeah. w- watching? I think that's pretty much it. Huh. All right, ready for the next one? All right, yeah. All right, next paragraph. Here we go. All right. In June of 1958, Reuters is it Reuters or Reuters that um I know you've seen it. It's a news. I think it's I always I said, think it's Reuters. I think that's what I always said, Reuters. All right, we're going to go with that. In June of 1958, Reuters News Service reported that natives of the South Sumatran village of, okay, here we go again, Pabamuli, that's my guess, best guess at that, had captured a, had captured alive a strange creature resembling some unknown type of near human. 
It was described as a female, estimated to be about 16 or 17 years of age, and completely covered with hair from head to foot. It was known to Sumatrans as Sindai, and the government of the Netherlands had once offered a reward to anyone who could bring in one alive. When the natives found that the present Sumatran government had not renewed the bounty offer, they took the creature back into the jungle and turned it loose. It reportedly showed no willingness to eat while in captivity and made no effort to defend itself when surrounded by the natives who brought it in. The specimen was about five feet tall and looked remarkably human, according to the natives who captured it. Um, all right, here we go. I think that was just one little story, and here comes another. I think it's related. Hmm. Colonel V.S., and uh, this is a Russian last name. I'm just going to call him Colonel K. It looks like Karapetian, but it's... I can't ever read Russian. Me either. So, as from this point forward, I'm going to refer to him as Colonel K. Colonel K attached to the medical service of the Soviet Army in 1941 was stationed in Buiniak, which is in the Dagestan Mountains. This is Russia we're talking. He filed a report on the incident, which occurred there in the winter of 1941. When local authorities came to him and invited him, invited him to examine a wild man, quote unquote, they had captured in the nearby mountains. Colonel K says that the creature was male, barefooted and naked. It was compl- it was entirely human in shape and was covered in sorry I'm laughing I just thought of something but I'll get back to that later. I got okay hold on. Okay, Colonel K says that the creature was male, barefooted and naked. It was entirely human in shape and was covered in, with dark brown hair and shaggy texture on its chest, shoulders and back. The face, palms and soles of the feet were not hairy. The sparse hair around the creature's mouth was bristly similar to, similar to a man's beard. The hair on its head was long and very dark brown, and it hung down to the shoulders. It gave the appearance of a man slightly more than six feet tall, broad-shouldered, long-armed, deep-chested. The natives who were caring for the creature told the colonel that they could not keep the prisoner in a warm house because he perspired so freely that the stench was overpowering. The The colonel's official report says that the wild man stood before him like a hairy giant, chest out, shoulder square, Huge hands, thick, strong fingers hanging almost to his knees. When offered food, the captive made no response to any kind. Made no response of any kind. He did not fight, nor did he make any attempt to talk, other than a whimper softly a time or two. Says Colonel K's report. So this is his report that he wrote. His eyes told me nothing. They were large and dark, and they were also dull and empty of expression. They were the eyes of an animal and nothing more. That became, what became of the creature is not known, for Colonel K was transferred from that point a few weeks later, and what must have been one of the most interesting captives on records was lost to science. So there's another story. Let's, let's take a pause there for yeah. a second. So a couple things that were interesting. Oh, what was interesting to you about that? Um, his account, well, the hair actually, the hair talking around the face was more bristly. They said, mm-hmm. like facial hair, like facial, like a person's facial hair. Um, and then the, the hair on top of its head was like long and mm-hmm. it, it almost, it's still, it kind of keeps me in the area. I don't know whether or not this is beast or human or something in between or just a mix somewhere like a mix of both. And I still lean, it is some human remnant or something of a human being from what we have some relation to us now and one form or another, but I'm also believing there's some there's definitely some sort of beast factor 
in yeah. with that. You know, I go back and forth a lot mm -hmm. between human, somewhere on the human branch, mm -hmm. or maybe on the orangutan branch. Uh, and that's because of different accounts, you know, just kind of, you get little pieces of information that's like, oh, that really fits over there, or that really fits over here. Um, but yeah, a really interesting, two things I really picked out of there were the eyes on the second story. Yeah. That's still heavily described in today's sightings. And any photos you actually do see, whether, you know, you don't know if they're real or yeah, not. Yeah, that's the thing with photos, but they almost look like sharks, great white sharks, uh, mm -hmm. you know, all iris. Yeah. Uh, or all pupil, almost. Pupil. Or I guess iris, I iris, guess, pupil, if your yeah. iris is black. Yeah, well, dark colored. Or yeah, that too, okay. Uh, that's what I pick up from some of the stuff that has been seen talking. It's not, their pupil's not humongous, which I'm sure it is, but not, it's, it's mostly not the their eye. iris. Right, yeah. It's a big muscle mm -hmm. on top of the eye to help control light. But uh, the other thing was, they're not eating in captivity. Yeah. And going really docile. That is probably... When we catch big animals, that is probably the second most common reaction big animals have to captivity. Mm -hmm. uh, they just shut down. Uh, it's it's really close to depression. Um, so everybody knows the video, seen the videos of tigers and stuff in cages where they just snap and they're coming at you. They're you know hitting the cage. Yeah. There is another side to wildlife capture where it's really like it's depression. Mm -hmm. uh, they snap the other way. Uh, you can't get them to eat. You can't get them to move. Uh, in college, we had a bear that we tried to release and it wouldn't come out of the cage. Because it was just... It was... Brain was so fried from it being in the cage. Yeah. That they just didn't know what to do. They lock up. Mm -hmm. And now you talk something a little smarter. Or a lot smarter. In the same situation. You you know, I can see that being a biological reaction. A natural reaction. When you think of... Everybody thinks of the animal striking out or, you know, mm -hmm. that is probably the most common thing, you know, more not more times than not, you put a tiger in a cage, he's going to let you know he's not happy. Right, yeah. But there is that chance that, you know, they have the other snap. And, and I was thinking too, if it's even, imagine yourself, if someone were to just come into your, like, wherever your daily routine is, your house, snatch you up, take you away, put you in a cage somewhere. Even though it's different for us because we can communicate with other people, but let's say it's another being that you don't, you're not aware of. That's yeah, smart. It's a different culture. Yeah, just takes you away. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna mm -hmm. accept their food? I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't say it word to them. Yeah, are they gonna I kill mean, you? You don't know. You can see that even uh, in dogs, especially. Yeah, yeah. Wild dogs like they won't take food. Sometimes they will. Mm -hmm. If they're uh, if hungry enough, yeah. Well, I've seen starving dogs videos, oh, and they won't won't touch it because they don't trust you. Right. Exactly. I mean, as far as they know, you just, like you like you described, you know, you just came, wrangled them, put them in a box, mm -hmm. and now here's some food. Right, yeah. Yeah, no thank you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But, uh, I'm trying to think what else. Where was Captain K's story? I kind of missed that. So that one was, he was, the first one was, um, his was Russia. Russia. His, somewhere and in Russia, yeah. The other one was in Sumatra. Which I believe it looks like it was in. Is that in Netherlands? It seems it. Sumatra. Maybe I spelled it. It's Sumatran. Sumatran. Oh. Sumatran. I don't know where that is. I it, know where Sumatra is. Sumatra's down, uh, like between Asia and Australia. Oh, okay, maybe. Well, I don't. It's. I think maybe unless it just says uh, 
it was the government of the Netherlands that had yeah, but they, they might have been their territory. Gotcha. Okay, so like, yeah, Sum- yeah, that's Sumatran. Okay, so, so it is yeah, it's Sumatra. So that's okay, cool. Pendek territory. Oh, nice. Okay, which saw a new video about that it came out future episode. I like the orang pandak. That one's yeah, it's a it's a neat one. They're mostly red. Yeah, like red oranges or yeah, something. Yeah, orangutan. Yeah, I think a lot of it. So there's an extinct group of orangutan in there. Extinct quotation marks. I think a lot of the orangutan sightings. Not all of them. Mm-hmm. I think you do have your bigfoot like creature down there. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a hidden group of orangutans that are still there, and that's what they're seeing a lot. Have you seen that video of the guy on the? motorbike yeah you showed me it did i show you that okay but yeah there's a lot uh, i think a lot of it is the extinct extinct quotation mark orangutan species Mm -hmm. uh i can't remember when they went extinct i'd have to do more on that i used to know about it but it was a uh they're not long-term extinct they're not like we're not talking thousands of years it was relatively new extinction event but yeah all right continue all righty Next, here we go. In 1939, when Mongolian and Chinese troops were fighting in one of their innumerable border wars uh, from South Park, Mongolians trying to tear down my wall. That's what I think of every time. (laughs) A small party of Mongolian soldiers came upon three strange human-like creatures scrambling up a hillside. They shot them and reported that the creatures looked like wild men without clothes. Covered with hair about three inches long. <clears throat> and that description fits the man-like creature that a Mongolian chemist encountered on a field trip in 1947. He was sitting beside some boulders eating his lunch when he noticed that a hairy man-like creature had come out of a crack in the rocks and was digging around the soil, evidently searching for food of some sort. The chemist watched the creature for about 15 minutes from a distance of less than 100 feet. And his description is similar to that which Colonel K gave of the captured wild man he examined. The natives of the mountainous region of the American Northwest, from Northern California to British Columbia, lived in fear of a giant hairy man. Lived in fear of giant hairy men, who assertedly made their home in dense forests in that area. When the Indians told the white men about these monsters, whom they called the Sasquatch, the white men generally regarded the whole business as another piece of primitive fiction. But as time went on, and some of the white men themselves came out of those same mountains. With their own experiences to recount, the Indian stories began to seem more credible. When the Victoria British Columbia Daily British Colonist made its remarks about re, makes, made its remarkable report from Yale, British Columbia, and other under date of July third, eighteen eighty four, a lot of people who had stories to tell these Sasquatch to tell of these Sasquatch began to step forward. The British the Daily British Colonist, which is a paper, told how a train crew had spotted a creature that appeared to be half man, half ape, lying beside the tracks at a deep cut about 20 miles north of Yale. The train was hurriedly stopped, and the train crew managed to grab the creature as it attempted to scale the steep rocky bank. Unable to take it alive without being scratched or bitten, one of the trainmen got above it and knocked it senseless with a piece of stone. They tied the creature to a bell, with a bell rope and put it in the baggage car. A large crowd assembled to see the captive when the train reached its destination. The paper quotes the train crew as speculating that Jacko, as they called their captive, had ventured too close to the edge of the cut and had fallen to the track, stunning himself, which might explain why he was lying open when first seen. Within a day or two, he was fully recovered and none of 
none the worse for his rough treatment. He looked like a small hairy man covered with black silky hair, except for the hands, feet, and face. He walked on two feet, was about four foot ten inches tall, and weighed 127 pounds. Unfortunately, Jacko was allowed to leave the scene with some itinerant showmen, and what befell him is unknown. But from the descriptions, it was likely that he was a young specimen of the Sasquatch, and that he grew to maturity with his fur would have changed color. So that one was pretty interesting. So let's pause. There's yeah. a lot there. That was a lot. So let's go back to the Mongolians. Okay. Uh, people that don't understand, what do you when I when you hear Mongolia, what do you think of as far as habitat and terrain? Um, I in that like wide open steppe area, like uh, isn't Mongolian just like vast uh, like grasslands almost? There's grasslands. There's desert. Uh, and there's a lot of big wetlands. There's mountains. So it's a little bit of everything. And it has a super low population density. Yeah. And it has tons of area with nobody. Uh, expeditions. Hmm. It's one of the hardest places to do biological surveys in the world. Why is that? It's so big. And with nothing out there. And so much different terrain. You have to pack so much stuff just to survive. So it's just unforgiving terrain. Yeah, and it's, it's a variety of stuff. Like, you'll run into these giant wetlands in between the dunes, mm -hmm. and you can't get around them. That's crazy. And you can't go through them. And then you run into mountains and rivers, and And then so, it's, it's 20 below zero, and yeah, it's... Yeah, and it gets super cold at night, and it gets yeah. super hot during the day. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's like a different planet. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a couple of biological surveys go through there, and they discover stuff pretty much every time they go to Mongolia, because... You can't get to it. So mm -hmm. if you can brave it and get to a wetland, you'll discover new bugs and all kinds of stuff. Well, that's uh, they all live off of milk and riding horses there, right? Yeah, it's it, it's the Mongolians are a very extreme people. Yeah, a very tough breed of people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they hunt with eagles. So well, and my favorite my favorite sport is sumo wrestling. The top sumo wrestlers come from freaking Mongolia. Oh, I could see that. They're monsters. Yeah, they're well, monsters. They have to be where they live. Yeah. Uh, they remind me a lot, actually, of the Inuits. Kind of, okay. Uh, with how they set up their huts and everything. Like yeah. That. Not their huts. Um, what are they called? Yurts. Are, are they? Are, is there yurts? Yeah, I think that's the yurts that's, okay. that they have. It's Those are the big round tents, right, yeah. basically? Yeah. Uh, with how their lifestyles are and stuff like that, they really remind me of the Inuits, mm -hmm. which are the another extremist group of people. Are they nomadic? The Inuits? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I think... And the Mongolians are very nomadic. Yeah, I thought so, too. Uh... That'd be a great lifestyle. So, moving on to the Sasquatch story. So, I've heard that story before. Oh, you have? Okay. Yeah, Which one? That's different. Which... Jacko. Okay. Uh, so, when I heard the story of Jacko, it was, he was not alive. What happened is he was unconscious on the side of the railroad tracks. He heard the train coming. He ran up the side and then he fell to his death. Mm -hmm. And he died. And they put him on the train car and he was seen like six or seven little towns like everything pretty much every town they'd be like look at this thing and uh the smithsonian wired that they would pay this is what year was that do you remember um yep it says it right here uh it was july 3rd 1884 is when they told the story so, so it, before that yeah but the smithsonian offered like a thousand dollars for his body yeah which is an insane amount of money back then yeah oh uh, yeah uh, insane actually that's yeah. a lot of money i think it was a thousand dollars flat and so they were buying ice put on jacko's body and they couldn't keep him and eventually they just threw him out of the train because he started to rot too bad yeah and we already know they stink yeah uh so yeah 
That's the story I heard. Jacko wasn't alive, and they just threw him out of a train somewhere. Which, I mean, it's not too much different than this. Other, you know, this just says he left with some guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, you know, made it a nicer ending for this story. For the book. Yeah. Yeah, Jacko died because he fell off a cliff. Well, even though in this we... story it says they hit him over there with a rock, too. Like, to knock him out. Yeah, I don't... That, that's a little aggressive. But... When wh- they release him. Sorry we yeah. hit you in the head of the rock. Yeah. Your service no longer. Bye. <laughs> we thought you were neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gunk. Hey, friend. Boom. I don't want you to bite me. I'll just knock you out. <laughs> All right. I got... A, there's a few more here. We're almost through it. Okay. All right. So, next... Mr. and Mrs. George Chapman and their three small children lived in a cabin near the Little River of Ruby Creek on the Fraser River. Was was one of their children William? Ooh. Wait, William Chapman? Mm -hmm. Why do I know that name? Is that that a real thing or not? I don't know. Let's let's find out. Um, Okay, on the Fraser River, they were... Let's start over. What state? Um, I believe... It says it in here. I think this is Northwest U.S. Okay. Um, but I don't think it... Somewhere out there. Yes, somewhere out there, I believe. Okay, here we go. Mr. and Mrs. George Chapman and their three small children live in a cabin near the Little River of Ruby Creek on the Fraser River in the summer of 1941, which places them about 22 miles south of the spot where Jacko had been captured by the train crew back in 1884, but this is 57 years later. Um, Chapman worked for the railroad, and his, and his journeys left his youngsters, a nine-year-old boy and two younger children, to be cared for by the mother. The eldest boy ran into the house to tell his mother that some big animal was moving around the bushes behind the field in the back, in the back of the house. Mrs. Chapman took a look and decided that it was a bear, but she was soon disabused as of the idea. For the creature burst out of the bushes into full view, and when she saw a giant, hairy, man-like thing walking slowly towards her and the children. When the children fled toward the river, she followed slowly behind them, between them and the Sasquatch. She, she could clearly see that it was covered with shaggy hair or fur, that it walked erect, and that its face was human or nearly so. While the mother and three children were fleeing down the riverbank, the intruder, as they discovered after Mr. Chapman got home, was busy rummaging through the house um, ter- and terminated his visit by tearing open a keg of salt fish, which, was, which he scattered around the yard. Mrs. Chapman estimated the creature's height at seven and a half or eight feet, and its giant footprints in the mud around the house were like those of a huge barefoot man with second toes longer than the great toe. Brownish hairs caught in the door jam confirmed Mrs. Chapman's guess that the thing was at least seven and one half feet tall. The Chapmans incidentally moved closer to town shortly after this incident. I bet. I would too. Especially if it was in your house. The vast wilderness areas of the northwestern United States had been the scene of hundreds of encounters between modern man and these half-man or hairy giants, known as Sasquatch. In 1924, a gang of loggers pretty hairy citizens and themselves, <laughs> pretty funny by the author here, left their uh, camp in the forest and refused to go back because they had been besieged by several giant ape-like creatures that pelted the loggers with rocks and clubs and tore up the camp. I think that was the end of the uh, Chapman, if you wanted to say yeah, anything. Yeah, let's that. stop for the Chapman. Okay, and then I think I got one more story and we're caught up. After the, the logger story? Yep, after the logger story, or 
It might be the longer story coming up last. So we're going to stop and talk about the Chapman stuff. Yeah. I think I've heard that story before. But an interesting thing. So when we were talking about earlier about how some of this stuff holds up over time mm-hmm. and hasn't really changed. So we talk about we talked about this on the interview too. The uh rogue Bigfoot. When you got these individuals it seems that do very uh out of characteristic stuff for from, them. From what we understand. From what we understand of yeah. their normal behaviors. Uh we call it so they call it rogue. Uh I don't think that's the right term because when an animal Rogue is something else for other animals. Um, they're always seven to eight foot tall. The ones that go rogue. Mm-hmm. They're always by themselves. Uh, they always do stuff like this. They get into stuff they shouldn't and stuff like that. It almost seems that these are the teenage males. They get pushed away. This is the year they get pushed away or the years they get pushed away from the rest of the family unit. So they're a little more rambunctious. And it takes an event... Like with my story, dad shooting in the trees at the thing, so he finally got shot at, and that was yeah, the event. And enough to stopped, him. and he went back to doing what he was supposed to be doing. Do you think, like maybe, as they're growing up, they want to interact with people, they want to get in the things. I think some do. I think I definitely yeah. And so, they're taught like no, you. Yeah, so I believe that fully. Yeah, that uh, some really want to push the envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some even want to scare us. You know, just yeah. playing around. And just and curious. Mom and dad's probably like, yeah, it's dumb. You don't mess, yeah. Yeah, if they find out you're here, they'll come for you. They're yeah. like ants, mm-hmm. talking about us. Right. You know, the thing about humans is we basically are ants. Uh, if you kill a person, that, or a person goes missing, they know that the woods is just instantly full of people. Yep. Come and look for them. Yeah, so it's not worth it. Uh, but I think your young ones... I've heard a lot of stories of like five footers kind of messing around people's houses and stuff, mm-hmm. not destroying anything, but your Just seven to eight out. footers are the ones that seem to be doing destructive behaviors, stealing behaviors, getting into food, mm-hmm. uh, really, really pushing the envelope and even borderline aggressive. And I think that's, that's a common thing with all nature, uh, especially males and especially primates. Mm-hmm. You get pushed off in the family. You're trying to be essentially a man. Uh, and so there's easy food and you're like, why can't I have this food? Mm-hmm. And just cause mom and dad warned you about it forever. What do they know? And right, we do the yeah. same thing. Exactly. We do. Uh, I mean, you see that in other primates. Uh, you can see that in gorillas at culture and culture. They basically have a culture and stuff like that. So. In human beings too. I mean, yeah, what do you do really the first, you know. You grow up, mom, tell, mom and dad telling you, you know, don't smoke cigarettes, don't drink this, don't do that. And the moment you turn 18 and you can, guess what? Yeah. If you want to do it, you're going to check it out. And then it takes one or two big events and you're like, oh, okay, mom and dad right. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's kind of what happens with these Seems that's, rogue big fun. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm feeling about I it, too. I think Momo, uh, the Missouri monster. Oh, okay. Uh, the big muddy monster mm-hmm. was about eight foot. And I think the Minerva monster was about eight foot mm-hmm. and they're reporting to bigfoot's getting bigger i don't know how big bigfoots get uh there's reports of them all the way up to 15 feet what we've talked about i don't know about that because we talked about the pound per inch of growth kind of deal yeah you know you can be a couple inches taller and be twice the weight right exactly so that's you're jumping up calorie intake so much 
Not saying it's impossible. No. Just saying my personal thoughts on the issue. I'd say if it does, I I think it. I'm not ruling it out. It don't happen. But I say if it does, it's very few and far between. Yeah, it'd probably it'd be. Yeah, you're. you're and those ones that do reach that, you don't want to be in there around them. No. Because they got that big for a reason, mm-hmm. or somehow because they know what they're doing. I I think that most adult males really top out at like your uh. Uh, what was I gonna say? Your twelve feet range, somewhere in there. Like that's the top of the, and those are probably the rare ones too. Yeah, I think, I think your big alphas are you know probably the eleven, eleven to ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they could get bigger. And then we also talked about uh, when people can be really bad judges of big things, right? Especially when that thing is big and scary looking. Yeah, if it's you about look twice up, the height. Yeah, let's say you look up at a ten foot Bigfoot. That thing might as well be thirty foot tall. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you got a building looking over you. With, like, red or red or yellow eyes, one or the other. Yeah, green is what mine green, was. Green, yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Chartreuse. Yeah, chartreuse, that's the good word. <laughs> but, yeah, so, how did we get on that topic? What was about that story? Oh, the seven to eight footers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they seem to really be your, your main troublemakers. From everything I've read and everything we've looked into, and my personal experiences, it just yeah. seems to be, I don't think there are, I don't think, I don't think, really think you're ever in, like, actual danger most of the time. But it's scary. Oh, it's yeah. It's a big thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it might be, I, like, the one in, on the other side of Ohio that was throwing stuff around because she stopped feeding him. Yeah. And she didn't even know she was feeding him. Right, yeah. Uh, the woman had a compost pile, and they left on vacation. But, but so she put her food scraps in this compost pile every day, and she'd heard animals get into it, and she just assumed it was animals. And then she came back after three days, and they had completely destroyed her yard, ripped all their bushes out of the ground, all this stuff, and had negative Bigfoot activity for weeks. And she finally got a hold of a researcher, and he's like, yeah, you were feeding them, and then you stopped, and then they got mad. So she's like, he's like, don't feed them anymore, you know a lot? Right. Oops. So, yeah. What's your last story? All right, the last one here. I think it's the last one, pretty sure. All right, in August of 1958, when a road-building crew was driving... A road into the mountain wilderness near Bluff Creek in Humboldt County, oh, California. I got the footprint right there. I was going to say, Bluff Creek sounded very familiar. What's that bottom one? Ah, uh, nice. Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's, uh, isn't that Patty? Is Bluff Creek Patty? No, What's same that's... area. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, is it? No. Yeah, I don't know. Bluff Creek's a logging company. Okay, okay. They were surprised one morning to find what appeared to be giant human footprints around the equipment, clearly defined in the fine dust. The same thing happened for several days. Then things became more interesting. The owner of those 16-inch bare feet with the 50-inch stride picked up a 700-pound tire and wheel for a bulldozer, carried it several hundred yards before dropping it, and a steel drum of oil weighing 300 pounds was carried up a steep mountainside and finally tossed into a deep, rocky ravine. Because of the size and weight, it took several men to handle it, but Bigfoot, as the particular Sasquatch became known, carried it with no assistance and apparently without strain. Before the giant transferred his mighty probes to some more remote area, plaster casts were made of his footprint and confirmed the description the road crew had given of a man-like foot, 17 inches long and 8 inches across the ball of the foot. And this one also displays the anatomical peculiarity that has been noted elsewhere. The second toe is longer than the great toe. I didn't know if that one had it or not. I was just checking it out. Eh, I think it's a Bluff Creek one. Continue. Um... But this could always be a different... Mm-hmm. I mean, you notice how many is there. Um, okay, because there's one more, but it still involves loggers. 
Robert Hatfield is a logger who lived in Crescent City, California in February of 1962. But at the time of this incident, he was visiting with some friends, Mr. and Mrs. Bud Jenkins, who lived four miles from Fort Bragg, California. Hatfield heard the dog, Jenkins' dog howling in terror, and he went out to see what was bothering the hound. He found out quickly enough. At the back of the yard, about 60 feet from where Hatfield was standing, a huge hairy monster with near-human face was peering at him over a fence. Since the fence was six feet high and the creature's chest and head were above the fence, it was unquestionably more than seven feet tall. At first, Hatfield thought he was looking at an immense bear, the biggest bear he had ever seen. He ran into the house and ruse Jenkins to come to see it. A few moments later, when both men hurried back outside, neither of them saw it at first. Hatfield dashed around the corner of the house and ran into the creature, knocking himself sprawling in the process. Hatfield yelled for Jenkins to get into the house. It's half man and half beast. That's what he screamed. Hatfield scrambled to his feet and raced for the door again, the thing right on his heels. He got in, but the creature kept sniffing and push snuffling and pushing on the door to such an extent that the two men's combined efforts could not shut it. When the pressure eased off for a moment, Jenkins ran to grab a rifle. By the time he loaded the weapon and returned with it, the creature was gone, and they had only the huge footprints to support their story. Um, the footprints and a muddy handprint on the side of the house. This handprint, 11 inches across, was photographed. The casts were made out, out of the footprints, which showed one toe missing. Hatfield told newsmen that he would never forget the face that looked down at him. As he lay sprawled on the ground, a nearly black face with stubbly bristles around the mouth and cheeks. Large black eyes, almost, but not quite human. The story of the Sasquatch is by no means complete, for it remains for someone to bring in one for examination by qualified experts. The evidence indicating that some sort of humanoid creature exists in the wilderness of the Northwest is vol voluminous. Or voluminous? Vol I, I don't know. Voluminous? I, I know what the word I is. I read it at third grade level. Yeah. Um, in fact, that is, in fact, it is a logical place for such creatures to dwell, if they exist at all. For in our own mountainous west and northwest, there are tens of thousands of square miles which are still unmapped and where few, if any, have, men have ever set foot. There seems little question that Bigfoot and his family are there. How to get them out, preferably alive, is the next question. Right. And that is the end of that chapter. We're going to take a pause before we talk about these stories. All right. Some issues or some ideas. Gotcha. Ready. Okay, we're back. So, the first one was Bluff Creek, right? Yep. And that's kind of a famous one. If I remember, I'm not getting my stories mixed up. Well, I guess one thing to compare is all the big stuff being flipped around. Mm -hmm. Remember my story? Yeah, your car uh, hood. and car hood and all that stuff. Uh, so, that's kind of a similar thing. And seven foot tall, you know, it fits right in that teenage, what we assume is teenage mm -hmm. size, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, uh, acting out. Uh, not happy there's people there and i've heard that too with uh construction and logging and all that stuff they get really unhappy yeah really fast which they rightfully, rightfully so. so yeah um but i think it's the bluff i can't remember which one it is now so i'm not gonna say this fully but one of them the guy that found the tracks can't to say it was hoax and had the wooden foot feet mm -hmm. that it was one of, i think it was him Aha. Uh, -huh. uh I'm not sure though anymore. But I mean if you look at that footprint compared to the others on the bottom. Right. Look how uh perfect it looks. Right, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh no big spongy pad like we see with some other ones. I don't know, it's just interesting stuff. 
Um, Makes you wonder. And then it talked about the end of the chapter. Oh, did you have any comments about that story? Uh, not that one in particular. So what was the next story? Just refresh me again. Um, the the next one was the the guy who uh the two guys who saw it in the backyard went out to go check it out and it was gone. He thought it was bear. We ran in the corner, ran into it, knocked him down. Then he t told his friend, "Hey, it's a half man, ass beast." He ran back inside and they held the door shut. And then uh, when they went back, oh, he was trying to sniff a little around the door and everything. Yeah, he's trying to get in. Yep, yep. And then yeah, that's kind of really weird behavior. Trying as to far as follow pursuing basically. Yeah, as far as Bigfoot go, uh, that's that's really strange. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard that a whole lot, but it's all really strange. And so you know, it's nothing to discount or nothing. It just is just an, uh, a different kind of story. Right. And, and if he wanted to get in that house, I'm sure he'd get in that right, house. Right. Yeah. And I don't think I I wonder if it was more of a protection thing, like hey, I really want to scare these guys. Right. Yeah. So they don't you know keep coming back from resting around. And I think we've witnessed that behavior before in some of the other stories. Hocking Hills, a lot of theirs, it was super, what seemed to be super aggressive. Mm -hmm. with nobody getting hurt. Alaska, I've heard those stories. Yeah, Alaska's a little different, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to get eaten by a Bigfoot... It's going to be in Alaska. I think it's going to be in Alaska or Canada. Because those guys are still a little, a little more wild. Probably more protective of their... Yeah, they're a little like, more wild. Like, this is all, the last frontier. Mm -hmm. You ain't uh, but like industrializing this. With hawking, they're super aggressive. Like, we've heard all the false charge stories, the mm -hmm. big rocks being wung past people's heads. And we've talked about rock does. If they want to hit you with a rock, they're going to hit you with a rock. So if you, if you don't get hit, that is your warning. Yeah. They did not miss. Right. That was them trying to be nice. They're very accurate. That's them trying to be nice to you. But, uh... Hmm. So when you have that hyper-aggressive, that makes me think of maybe it was trying to protect something and really just scare these guys. Like, I think a lot of the hawking ones are really just trying to scare you. Like, do not come back here again. Mm -hmm. Do not, you know, do not come looking for us again. Because they follow you all the way back to your tent. They keep throwing rocks. You know, it's just a constant harassment. When you're talking about a creature that could literally kill you in a second, but doesn't. So I think a lot of that is just the... Uh, they're kind of using that fear to their advantage of being like, you know, really don't mess with us. Because mm -hmm. um, I think if you do go too far, we don't hear those stories because you're not here. Right, yeah. Uh, and who's to say that happens or not because we don't get those stories because you're not here. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the book, oh, do you have any more comments about that one? Uh, not that one, no. Okay. So kind of talk about, I guess, the end of the book. Right. Or the end of the chapter. chapter, chapter the end yeah. of the chapter. Yes. Uh, first off, I enjoyed doing this kind of chapter review kind of thing, and we have plenty of books right, yeah. to kind of do it, and I think we might, you know, do this. I uh, normally like to stay more in the Midwest stuff, but this is a good Bigfoot overall thing. You right, know, yeah. A, a good, a really good introduction to somebody maybe newish to Bigfoot. Right. Kind of wants an old, you know, this is kind of like the overarc that everything's come from today that we're looking mm -hmm. into. Some older lore. That's... Yeah. Yeah. Uh... But we have modern books, and we have other weird stuff uh, that we'll probably do chapters. Like, I, I, I enjoy doing the chapter review. But as the book said, there's no body. So I wanted to talk about uh, retroactive evidence. So the second we have a documented body, and it's going to be hard, because I do believe there are people out there that do not want a body 
to be in the public right domain yeah um there's all kinds i lean towards economic stuff mm-hmm. uh Jay leans towards like uh More cultural stuff cultural spiritual psycho, side. psyche stuff yeah and i i do agree that with him that it will it's gonna affect both extremely heavy mm-hmm. i just personally with how i view humans always always follow the money but uh the power struggle could be real mm-hmm. with it. You know, why do these guys don't have to pay taxes and we do? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and it will change. It will change a lot of how we view stuff in the U.S. Or it won't. Who knows, really, how people are going to react. Uh, I mean, the government said UFOs are real a couple of years ago and everyone's like, oh, we knew. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, I think it was the government came out and said Bigfoot's real. At this point, I think it could go either way. People are going to lose their freaking minds. I think it's really what the media does. And the media is like, they're getting your kids or, you know. Right. I think I think what they would do if they do disclose Bigfoot, they would try to make it as little of a deal as possible. Yeah. Like, just like with the UFO, oh, it's he's real. Here's like this. Evan. They'll probably claim that there's very, very, very little of them left. That or it's a not... group of Native Americans or something like that that's just been hiding out. Yeah. If, you, if they said that, Nobody'd care. Yeah. Literally nobody'd care. Mm-hmm. It's some group of Native American shaman or something, make up something that doesn't exist. Yeah. And nobody'd care. Mm-hmm. Everybody'd be like, oh, so that's what you see running across the road. And then we'd have made another country and put that on the news and bomb, you know, some other countries and distraction, and there we go. Bigfoot's under the rug again. Getting a little political there. Uh, well. Not saying it's not accurate, <laughs> but it's a little political. The, the truth's the truth. Um... I do have a couple theories, though, after reading this, about what Bigfoot might be. Oh, let me finish. It'll be okay with uh, my retroactive oh, yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Finish that. So, because uh, I'll lose it if I don't say it now. Yeah, get it out then. <laughs> uh, so, retroactive evidence. So, when we have this body, basically all this, not useless, but kind of useless DNA evidence we've collected over the last 30 years, all these foot casts, all this stuff, the second we have a body and we have DNA and we have morphological measurements... So morphological measurement is like, so there's all the Bigfoot foot theories mm-hmm. of like how it measures versus width versus length and stuff. Once we have a body, we can be like, okay, it's, it's real. So it's easy to, it's really easy to run down cast, like real fake, real fake, real right, fake. Right, yeah, if you got a baseline and to go off hair of. is just easy, you know, that DNA sequencing will be just simple. Because mm-hmm. now you have something to compare it to, you'll be less likely to get thrown out for human. Right. Because you have a line, the computer's not going to think, okay, I can't find a match, but it's really close to human. Right, yeah. So it's human. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. So you have 30 or 40 years of all this evidence. The second we have a body, and you can really get a good idea of a range map instantly. Because mm-hmm. uh, you have all this you have all this stored data. So that's why, well, that's why this DNA is not useless. It's just no use for it right now. Mm-hmm. But when we the second we have a body, it's just it's gonna be an explosion, and it's gonna be good data. It's gonna yeah, be really yeah. really good habitat analysis, density, pop, you know, population density. You have a big density. pool of uh, data really to dive into. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. The second, and we've talked about. I'm not gonna be the guy to kill one. Right. Yeah. Same. Uh, I'm not gonna be the guy to bring one back alive. I think that's worse than killing one. Unless he threatens me first. That's different. I mean, <laughs> I'm going home to my wife. If he wants to fight. I yeah. don't think I'll win. I'll throw down. I carry a judge for a reason. I mean, I can bite. <laughs> Everybody, I hope Jay's literally like four foot five. Right. 
They might think you're a baby Bigfoot with mange. Yeah, (laughs) with his beard. Oh, come here, little guy. And then I'll bite you. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so that's kind of my thoughts. You go ahead. Okay, this is my theory. I think Bigfoot could be a remnant human being. You know, like uh, when a domesticated pig, you let it out into the wild. Three weeks. Becomes a boar. So now imagine human beings. Your whole world gets turned upside down and you get thrown out in the wild. I don't know. Giant volcano explodes. Comet hits the earth. Or a lightning storm. You know, all the main theories. Whatever. The cataclysm. Now you're out in the wild and you start morphing into that wild beast. Not undomesticated human being. You grow the hair. The eyes go from human-like to more animal-like. You know, the irises widen. You get the dark, dead eyes. You get the hair that just grows uncontrollably to keep you in the elements, and then you develop that way, and then that's what we're left with now. They're still here, but they're ancient humans that have bred down the line. So you're saying genetics. It's it's a generational thing, not... Not an individual did this. Correct. Okay, like, because with pigs, it's an individual. Well, I think it could have started that way. And then you had those ones have babies. Then they're born like that. But you're saying probably more from a more primitive human to start? Yeah, or... Because we had more hair originally. Maybe I mean, not primitive, but just an ancient... Earlier. An earlier human, yeah. Whatever, yeah, whatever's had, here our, before. A lot of our species that we came from had a lot more hair than we do yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, but once, when you get domesticated and you live in a civilization, you know, with things, you lose your hair, you lose so, your... But you got, like, people like Mick Dodge that's lived out in the woods for 35 years. Yeah. And he's hairy, but he's not a Bigfoot. But not yet. And I met the guy Skunk down in Hawking. He was really hairy, but he's not a... He doesn't... He gets mistaken for a Bigfoot. So, I mean, let him have a baby with a woman that's also out there doing that. I, I think after but... a couple generations, you could be on to something. And then but, the, uh, the deadening of the eye, like the eyes, I think is always what that's gets a me different because they're so, they're beast like. And when you, you talk know, about animal. pigs, you're talking about a lot of phenotypical differences mm. that can happen very quickly, and that happens in pigs in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why pigs are really. That's why everybody looks at pigs when they go wild; that they can grow really dark hair really fast. And tusks, and a good tusk. and, yeah, but they're always growing their tusks. They're just mm-hmm. cutting them, and but uh. When you talk about people, we don't really have that. And then eyes are a whole different thing, because that's a advancement of a complex organ. Yeah. While still being used. That's, that's a, as far as I know, I'm trying to think, here's, you know what I normally do, I try to put it to another biological thing that we mm-hmm. know about, and I'm trying to think, it's something that really does that, and it's, I can't really think of anything. It's hard, but generational, yeah. And then I think if you're starting from a, a more, basal human still human still you know just as intelligent has the same capabilities i think it's a lot easier to get to what sasquatch look like now yeah and still being able because there's all the stories of them crossbreeding mm-hmm. and still get to that root crossbreeding yeah but uh yeah interesting well i have one more theory too okay. i th- also think this could be a very high probability sasquatch are a remnant AI self, you know, a species, their artificial intelligence that grew so advanced in the past. This and we're talking thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even millions of years old. Who knows? They were an advanced AI species that broke away from their captors or their owners, basically. And they learned how to, and they were able to uh, 
reproduce. And so like think of Terminator, you got a robot body covered by biological flesh tissue. And now these things can reproduce and they broke away because they became self-aware and they're like, well, we don't want to live. And they broke away, started meeting up with each other. That's why they're so accurate with throwing stones. It's literally a computer throwing at you. They don't miss. They're super strong, like a robot. A baseball player wouldn't miss. You can shoot it a hundred times. Nothing. It's a robot. It's a self-intelligent robot from the future or past. All right. So, yeah, you almost kept a straight face that whole thing. But as crazy as it sounds, I was gonna, I was gonna help you out. So. Uh, there are so before anybody completely thinks Jay is insane, we uh, currently have organic AIs and organic robots. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, the early one was early two thousands. We had the uh, algae stingray we made. It had a rat's heart tissue, and it was powered by the algae and the fins, and it had a rat's a little piece of a rat's brain to help it swim up and down to follow light. Mm. And we do have more. Uh, we actually have a computer chip that has brain cells in it because it works a lot better. Uh, that was last year. Uh, so we do have organics with uh, technologies and AI specifically because brain cells work a lot better than a lot of these chips. So if we're connecting dots here, I mean, just to modern times. Uh, if... First, I want to say before uh, you jump me into this. Okay. I do not believe that in any way, shape, or form. But <laughs> that is some help for you. Right. Well, let's say I've, modern times. Let's say that did happen, and these Bigfoot AI hybrid hum, human cyborgs lived. Let's say uh, there, that means there was some sort of cataclysm that killed everything else, right? And these were the remnants that made it. So if we're now again in modern times trying to merge man and machine, what if that's a sign maybe another cataclysm is coming? Could be. And this Bigfoot's the only thing that's going to make... Maybe they're our saviors, after all. They're going to teach us how to make it through this. If anything, I believe Bigfoot's just sitting in the dark like, yeah, they'll take themselves out eventually. Remember <laughs> that, too. Yeah, that's why they're staying clear of us. Yeah, don't worry. Just don't get involved. <laughs> yeah, the problem, it will solve itself. Yeah, they, they, they are. Which? <laughs> they're not. I don't think they're wrong. <laughs> I'm either. But, yeah, that's my two theories. What was your first one? I don't even remember it now. Yeah, the first one was that there. Early human. Early just, human separation. Yeah. Re, uh, became feral. Yeah, or... re, yeah readapted to yeah, outside life, basically. Became a wild yeah. being. And I I think I'm kind of there with you on the... I I don't think they readapted. I just think they never took this step off into domestication. Domesticate, yeah, yeah. I, I think they were just... When we stepped right, they stepped left. Which kind of deal? Mm-hmm. I don't think there was, and it doesn't really matter when you really get down to it whether they went back to it or you know. Right. Yeah. When we're talking, I mean, we could be talking thousands, even millions. I think we're talking probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot can happen in a hundred thousand years, but we're looking at we're roughly four or five species of human slammed together to get to where we are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not, uh, a refined member of a certain species into another species. We're a big hybridization event. Mm-hmm. And humans diversified heavily 
and then came back together and hybridized. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Neanderthals, people have this negative indication that Neanderthals were big, dumb humans. Right, and they were not at no, all. They had they call them high-speed drills. They had a type of drill, you know, not like an electric drill. I've seen people make that comment in one of the articles I was reading. But no, they had some kind of a pressure drill, and they had bracelets and stuff like that. They wore jewelry. Mm-hmm. You know, they made clothes. Uh, and they were tougher than us, but Neanderthals did not go extinct. They were bred to extinction. Mm-hmm. But their DNA is still present, so they're technically not an extinct species. Mm-hmm. The hybridization event. Yeah, Neanderthals didn't go extinct. We just kept making babies until right. we watered them down. Yep. Well, the same with Cro-Magnon and all of our ancient ancestors. Den- Denisovan. Denisovan. And that's the one that some people kind of look at. I've heard recently about Sasquatch that they were Denisovans were actually really big. Mm-hmm. And I've found, I found no evidence either way yet. That they were big? Yeah. I think that that came from that tooth they found, and they found a pinky bone. Yeah, so but up. like I said, I've seen no evidence either way. Right, yeah. Whether they were really big or really not. Normal, yeah. You know, normal, relatively, you know, mm-hmm. the five to six foot that most most human species fell into pretty early uh is that kind of the range uh you had some like the pygmy people right yeah that were you know three three and a half and you had there's a couple different species of pygmies uh the early the latest living one was i'm trying to think what they were called i used to know the name basically in africa and white people from england would come and hunt them pygmy people yeah how sad these desert dwellers they were really small because they lived out in the desert yeah and they'd pay these other africans to take them out to hunt them. Wow. I think there's still a stuffed one in the British Natural History Museum. I have to Google that and I'm trying see to, it. I can't remember the name of these, this tribe, but they were really small little people. Hmm. And they're proportional. You know, they weren't... So without being derogatory, so like a genetic disorder, like dwarfism or something like that, you know, those people were generally unproportional because it's a genetic disorder. These guys were proportional, so they just look like a scaled down yeah person. Persian. Uh, it, it doesn't mean anything. It just you know what versus it was a bread effect versus a genetic de- defect. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Any other comments about your book? I think that good covers Christmas, it. Good Christmas present. It was a very good Christmas present. It's a lot to get into this one. Mm-hmm. And I think next week I'm going to put it on paper. So that I finally make myself do it. We're going to cover some sort of atmospheric jellyfish. Ooh. Or atmospheric amoeba. Or the manta ray. Is it the Maryland manta ray? I can't remember. I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember where it was. Uh, yeah, we're going to tackle that. And it's we're going to try to get back on the Midwest Appalachian right, yeah. train. And there's plenty of them here. I have a whole book over there called Living UFOs. All right. I kept that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so all the way from the suburbia of Chicago to the Great Ohio River down by Cincinnati, <laughs> we have been your guides. I've been Justin. And I've been Jay. And you've been listening to Crippers of the Corn. We'll catch you next week with some atmospheric anomalies. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.